Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Norman Horn, president of the Libertarian Christian Institute. Today, I am joined by Doug Stewart and Nick Gausling for a roundtable discussion about, well, a number of things that have been on our minds lately. So you can think of this episode as if we're all just hanging out together, having drinks, and we just totally have to talk about liberty and what's been on our minds lately. We've got a number of things that we're interested in discussing today. So, Nick, what have you been thinking about lately? You know, one of the things that's been in the news quite a bit lately, and it's it's sort of a recurring story. I mean, there's always new uh, elements of it that we're seeing, new developments, but it's the issue of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and what's going on in uh, really the, the, the state of technological innovation. Now, you know, being libertarians, obviously we uh, are, are supportive of the concept of innovation, especially being, well, I mean, being Austrians anyway. It's it's good to have developments that take old things that are less efficient and obsolete and pave way for uh, things that are more efficient, that make our lives easier, that lift people out of poverty. And, and there's just so many exciting things uh, for civilization that can come out of that. But there's also uh, a, a flip side to it that I think we have to uh, beware of. And sometimes this is discussed in uh, in, in these news stories and reports on these things, but not not as much as I, I think really needs to be. And that has to do with what are, what are the downsides of what can happen with AI and roboticizing and automating everything. And particularly what I mean by that is the ethics of delegating ethical decisions and the, the well-being of humans to artificial intelligence and robots and things of that sort. So just today, for example, I mean, by the time this posts, it'll be a few weeks out, but I was reading today that uh, Jack Ma, who's the CEO of Alibaba, one of the largest um, distributor retailers in the world, it's kind of a competitor to Amazon, a little different, but similar, based out of China. And he said that eventually even CEOs will be replaced by robots and AI, which may well be a good thing. But the, the thing that I, I think often goes um, unconsidered in this is what happens when AI starts replacing judges and courts and police and all these, these really state entities and others who have sort of life or death authority in society, because that that seems to be the trajectory that things are taking. And I guess the question is, can we outsource ethics, and particularly Christian ethics, into artificial intelligence? And my my inclination would be to say, no, you, you can't do that. It's not metaphysically possible to do that, because a machine can't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A machine doesn't have the the ability to interpret and apply 
Christian ethics because that's the power of God working through his church to do that. So what is, what is society going to look like if we take the ethics out of it? And of course, I mean, we're living in a post-Christian culture. So what's going to happen when we have people who um, are, are programming AI and robots and other things of this sort to render ethical decisions? And I mean, and, and, and then the, the really scary thing is if it gets to the point of singularity where these machines become self-aware and then just start replicating to where it's out of control. Now, I don't want to seem like, um, like, 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 a, a, like I'm talking about doomsday here because, I mean, obviously being Christian, uh, we believe that you know, God is in control, uh, Christ is sovereign, and ultimately he's, he's going to inaugurate his kingdom. But that doesn't mean that bad things can't happen in the meantime. So, uh, Norman, you're a scientist. You know, in your experience, what – what is generally kind of the climate these days when it comes to science and engineering and thinking about the ethics of innovation and what kind of impact uh, will that have on on society? Well, I think the impending ethical decisions that are probably uh, particularly relevant in the upcoming improvements and deployments of AI – are, are are probably going to be most felt in things like self-driving cars. And those are where you, you see some really interesting kind of discussions going on about, you know, ethical decision-making by AIs. Um, there, to, to a certain extent, we've already been dealing with this um, for some time in the, in, by virtue of just air, airline travel. I mean, for the most part, even a lot of, air, uh, a lot of uh, airplanes at this point are, are for the most part done by autopilot. Um, even landings to a, to a large extent are being controlled by algorithms. And that's what AIs are. I mean, the thing, the thing that everybody kind of has to remember here is that when we talk about AI, artificial intelligence, well, it's only as intelligent as it's programmed to be. We have no we have no precedent for it, and and I don't believe in the singularity that that people seem to get all hyped up about. But there's there's just no precedent for emergent intelligence in such a way that humans are intelligent. Uh, we don't see you know we don't see beating the Turing test for you know in in any significant way that that allows uh, that allows for a computer to pass as a human. And until we even get close to that. You can't even imagine having um, ha- having particular uh, ethical decisions that are that are any more than algorithmically produced um, results. And so, really, when we start having those ethical discussions, it's well, what are the ethics are we, that we are going to build into it, and what kinds of calculations are we going to force the programs to make to make decisions? So it's not like that you can put agency upon these things any any more than uh, than the agency of, of a computer program that you would that that is playing a video game with you or something to that effect uh, that that's just running through algorithms. So the question you know is is a lot of it is well how do humans make ethical decisions how and then how do we turn that into an algorithm for say an automated car. 
uh, or something to that effect. I think that's that's a really interesting question. Those are, I mean, this is why Google and uh, other companies that are building automated cars, self-driving cars, are br- br- bringing in ethicists and philosophers to think about these things um, with their engineering teams. That's pretty interesting just from the outset. Uh, it's I I don't really have any fear per se of uh, of you know some type of emergent intelligence like some people seem to you know I'm there's nothing there's nothing there's nothing to that uh, I, I believe at least um, I'm not sure that there's you know if we start thinking about what what happens when AIs might be put into positions of we might call it state authority in some way. I mean, are we looking at an iRobot situation uh, with a with a robot police officer or something like that? I mean, right now, I think the the more pertinent ethical decisions are those that are being made at the forefront of of deployed technology. And we've already got some precedent set up, but we're we're working through that. And the more that we work through it, the more we'll be able to anticipate potential drawbacks, uh, issues, and and hopefully uh, realize uh, if and when it should not be deployed um, as, as in, in the case of say a judge or a police officer style or something something to that effect uh, I think that you know the, the biggest things that we're up that are up on the horizon are, are probably self-driving cars one of the things that comes to mind here is I don't know if this is going to be one of those problems that is going to just be right upon us and we're, we're going to be caught off guard I mean maybe that's true but with Norm, you, men- you mentioned uh, ethicists are being brought in by Google and Tesla and whoever else is making uh, or doing research on on self-driving cars. They're doing that because they know that this is a potential issue. I mean, people are talking about it. The people who are in the know, the ones who are on the the, the bleeding cutting edge of of this evolution, they know the potential problems that could happen. One thing that's a little bit more imminent is who's legally responsible for the decisions that is that are made by AI. Is Tesla responsible if they if your car slams on the brakes and your toddler's injured? You know, like there's a whole number of questions that that deal with, you know, insurance, there are insurance issues, there are, you know, liability issues if you're in self-drive mode on a Tesla. Those kinds of questions are a little bit more imminent in in terms of you know, like where where do the legalities show up? Is that is that like a confusion though of liabilities? I mean, because to a certain extent, like be, here's here's the problem I have with like saying, for instance, okay, well, if if a self driving car makes a mistake like that, or if it doesn't, it or if it, you know, at what point at what point is it the algorithm's fault um, versus something else? Like the fact that maybe your brakes weren't hundred uh, percent, or you know there was uh, there was occlusion in the visible you know field or something like that, and and like, these things you can't necessarily you can't solve all these problems. You can't necessarily you know assign agency to these to these things. We, we like even if these are ethical decisions that or or. or um, ethical conundrums in a sense. Well, we've been operating with these sorts of problems for a long time now, even, uh, you know, what happens, um, when, for instance, uh, like we've, we've, 
what what happens in manufacturing situations when a robot does something wrong or what happens when uh, a manufacturing situation where you know some some sensor goes off and something explodes and i mean we have ways of already accounting for these things and i think that there are those those are already uh, there's precedents that are set forth in those pilot that are going versus to autopilot. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, I think yeah. what the larger point, I guess maybe that was a specific way of bringing up a larger point is that there are problems that are on the horizon and there are problems that are within our arms reach. And these are the problems yeah. that are within our arms reach. We're, we're dealing with them. They might be new manifestations or iterations of, you know, liability problems or, you know, intelligence concerns regarding the thing is about the cars. It, no, they don't have agency, but they're they're in, they're designed. At least that's the way I understand it. They are designed to operate as if they did. And when they are designed to operate as if they did have agency as a replacement for a human driver, so that the human driver can multitask and not have to drive. Okay, I think that's where anybody would aim is the perfection of that sort of experience. Then you have owners of these cars giving up their agency by saying, okay, car, take me to work. Well, at that point, at what mode of car, you know, there's all those kind of complicated questions. Is it in completely self-driving mode? What responsibility legally does the driver have? Is it going to be they cannot text while watching their car drive? You know, those <laughs> are, it's kind of strange because like texting while driving might become legal again. <laughs> In many states, if your car is a self-driving car and if it's on a major highway, you know, there's all these. So the the point I'm trying to make is some things are within arm's reach. We're dealing with them. I don't feel as worried about this problem the way Norman doesn't feel worried about this problem. One of the reasons I don't feel worried is I think we're going to have enough time to figure it out. I don't think this yeah, is going to be this, this, you know, cataclysmic, you know, meteor well, that's coming and we only have a few situations. weeks to figure it out. Like, yeah, I mean, they come up with these crazy situations They're like, well, what if this were to occur? And, you know, I mean, uh, look, uh, like, let's posit that somebody – so suppose that the car sees Hitler in front of it. Does it – because it, Hitler time-traveled, is it going to – or should we run over Hitler or something? <laughs> Do we need to have that algorithm plugged in too? So what if it's like Kim Jong-un? He's living now. I mean, should the, should the self-driving car be pro programmed with something to run him over for the good of mankind or something? Like – we can come up with all sorts of crazy scenarios, um, but it's only going to be as good as the algorithms that we program into it. And we're already we're already figuring that out. And you know, to a certain extent, Doug, you say like we can we can't like we know what the problems are. Actually, I think there's a certain extent which we don't know what certain problems are and that are going to come up. I mean, that's why people have been hired to come and figure it out. It's because we don't know. This is an entrepreneurial endeavor at this point. Uh, we don't have all the answers, um, but you can't, you know, you can't plan for everything. You can only assign certain types of risk. Uh, it, like, I, I kid you not, we were, uh, my, my boss and I were driving to the airport um, probably a few weeks ago. We were going to fly to Connecticut for a business trip. And on the way to Fort Lauderdale, uh, we uh, encountered, um, we encountered two iguanas on the road. And they got run over <laughs> in front of us. <laughs> <laughs> Two iguanas on the road just got run. No, you can't program that in. You can't just you can't anticipate every little thing happening. 
uh, you can only assign risks and you know and insure against problems. Um, and so that's the way that we that's the way that this will be approached as well. Is that you you know we can't uh, we can't plan right now for every possible scenario as a driver now. And so what do we do? We insure against it. We insure against catastrophic things. And that's what's going to happen too with automated cars. You know, to kind of close out this discussion, I, I agree with basically what you guys are saying in that regard in, as far as the technologies that are uh, imminent and are being developed and worked on right now. Uh, in insurance companies, particularly in the, the property and casualty side of the insurance business, have extensive actuarial teams that are the greatest statisticians on earth who are working out how to handle these things from a legal tort uh, kind of perspective. Tort law refers to personal injury and property and things of that sort. So I totally get that. Maybe I'm just thinking a little bit further down the road, maybe past our lifetimes. I don't know how quickly it's going to come about. But just based on what people who are the leading innovators and CEOs and inventors in this space are saying, I, I think it's it's something to be considering now so that when we get to that point, whether it's us or three or four generations from now, the ethical discussions about, about these matters haven't been just sort of pushed to the wayside. So it's good that there's this discussion on this regard happening now. I think that's a fair, that's a fair point, that, that there are issues that, you know, down the line, we'll be discussing these still, still, you know, when, uh, as, as the technology progresses. So I think that's good. Yeah. You know, another story that has been dominating the news cycles lately has to do with uh, Russia and these accusations that Trump and many of his top advisors and now all these different individuals in uh, in the alternative press, be they more on the conservative side or more on the libertarian side, everybody's allegedly in the pocket of Russia. Everybody's a Putin puppet. Everybody's being controlled by the Kremlin. That's the narrative that is – uh, being pushed out by a, a lot of mainstream press, and particularly the left mainstream press. And you know, just the other day, there was there, there, there's this woman, Louise Minch, who was a British politician who, for some reason, has now gained a lot of traction with the the left and the the Never Trump conservatives here in the United States. But so she's one of the people who's really propounding this. Uh, concept, this idea that everything is a Russian conspiracy. And just the other day, she made the claim that she was in possession of a list of 205 people who, or, or 210, I believe. She said, yeah, her number was 210. So I'm in possession of a list of 210 people who are dupes of the Kremlin. These are agents of Putin. And on there were, were individuals from the Ron Paul movement, the libertarian movement, uh, the alt-right, all, all, these, all these individuals who just basically were um, not going along with this narrative or who were even marginally skeptical of neoconservatism and mainline neoliberalism and all these sorts of things wound up on this list. And I'm, I'm watching this. For anyone who knows a little bit about American history in the 1950s, this, it was almost a verbatim replay of Joe McCarthy going into his famous speech and saying, I'm in possession of a list of 205 State Department officials who are uh, undercover communists. 
And so then we have, now here we are in 2017. Louise Minch is going on and saying, I'm in possession of a list of 210 people who are uh, agents of Putin. And it's like we're replaying the Cold War. And I mean, like, you couldn't even script this. I, like, I mean, I was flabbergasted when I saw this happen, but people are actually buying it. And, you know, the interesting thing, um, I was just the other day, I was watching a, a replay or a, or a rerun, rather, of uh, an episode of The Big Bang Theory from like five years ago. And they were talking about the Russians, and it was all very derogatory. Like, they're making fun of, oh, look at how backwards Russia is. And now, 2016, 2017, it's like Russia is this grand superpower that controls everything from behind the scenes like, like a chess game. And so when we consider the power of narrative, I mean, it's just amazing how, how public perception can change on this. And I'm just... I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. Knowing what I know about history and society and how people react in mass to things, like, it shouldn't surprise me that that many people are falling for this anti-Russia line, but they are. And the danger is, it's not just like, mm, yeah, some people don't like the Russians and blah, blah, blah. It's, they're pushing towards war. We're talking about a 2017 nuclear superpower versus nuclear superpower in World War Three type scenario like that's the danger if, if it gets escalated to the extreme and so i think it's incumbent on us to denounce the propaganda and strive for peace which i mean as christians we should be doing that anyway but i mean this is just one of the most pressing things in the world right now is this crazy push towards world war three and it's particularly weird considering that, you know, we just also had a an incident which we as libertarians should also denounce, uh, where we did a, yet another foreign interventionism uh, of bombing Syria. And in fact, you know, as as I understand, uh, their uh, American ambassadors were sent to the UN to basically say, you know, well, let's we need to tell Russia to back down with respect to Syria, as if like for some reason, you know, oh well, we're in Putin's pocket, but this just happened. So how does that fit the narrative? Well, they come up. I mean, it's I it's just amazing how people will kind of can figure out some new theory to explain it all, and it's just crazy. How these conspiracy theories are constructed uh, in order to cast blame uh, where where they want to, and uh, because they're they're so dissatisfied and because they're not getting what they want, and that actually goes back to uh, ironically enough, Rene Girard again. Uh, we've talked about Rene Girard plenty already uh, in in this podcast, and uh, and the fact is is that you know. The the, uh, the the state of the left is that they've they were so co they were so confident and so uh, just with pure faith that they were going to get what they wanted uh, in the past six months or so, and they didn't. And now they're kind of trying to come up with as many ways as possible to explain how uh, how this could possibly have occurred to them. 
and and how that they how they lost the presidency, how they are losing the, their their hold on on popular opinion in certain ways, and they're scapegoating as many things and as many people as many others as they possibly can, in order to in order to you know try and explain what they're doing, uh, or, and and try and get back to where they are getting what they want again. And this is, I mean, this is just straight out of uh, of, of mimetic theory playbook, in a sense, um, that the scandals are mounting, they are not getting what they want, and they they don't understand why that is. So they cast blame, they scapegoat uh, the uh, some type of of, uh, of authority figure, and say this is why we can't get what we want. And and as a result, they want to try and take them down, and they try to invent new ways. They they create witches, they create uh, they create you know demons out of it, and they say, well, this is this is it, this is the reason, and it's it's a it's really crazy, but it's also you know it's it's very characteristic of uh, what happens in in this type of in this type of situation. And it's and it and as Nick, you said, it's incumbent upon us to speak some truth to the matter. And that's, that's exactly what we got to do. Um, because we should be able as Christians to see through this, we should see through the veil of, uh, of victimization like this. And we should see through the veil of, uh, of power plays and we should speak truth into, to both power and to just to into people's lives because they're going crazy over it. They're, they're becoming lo- just loonies. <laughs> to a certain extent, because they can't figure it out, they have to. They're trying to explain their reality in some way, and they can't. Uh, but it, with the with the the truth of the gospel, with the truth of of understanding, you know, why it is that we behave the way that we do, and that's what the Bible tells us so very well. Just read James, and you know, you 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 kill and covet because you can't get what you want. That's what we do, and without the gospel in our lives will continue to do that. So we got to keep speaking that truth uh, to people. And we got to, we got to say like, you, you know, you, the boogeyman in your backyard that you believe is because of Russia. Look, it doesn't exist. You don't get, you, you don't, you don't have that. I think that the, the, the left is really losing it over this. And, you know, it's not as if, it's not as if, you know, that the, the answer is, well, we just need to get the right back in power or something like, no, no, we can just, we can speak truth to power in that too. The right has their own set of boogeymen. They, they have their own, uh, things. I mean, look, like, just imagine, they, they keep having imagined enemies too in North Korea and they, you know, want to scapegoat China for problems. They want to scapegoat the Middle East for yet more things. And look, we need to back off. The message of, of liberty and the message of the gospel are one and the same in this respect, and that uh, and that we have to we have to back off. Uh, we need to sp- we need to interact peaceably with one another in order to to create uh, a better world. Like that's that's the the truth of the matter. Those are some really fantastic points. Like you said, on the on the right, there's been scapegoating for. For years, I mean, it's it's really just the essence of humans to scapegoat. But for years, under under right wing rule, you know, we're told that you know there's there's terrorists under every rock and behind every tree. And now it's, uh, I mean, even though there's the, the right is in power again, but now we have uh, the left saying, oh, there's 
there's Russians everywhere. And it's, it's like it never ends. There's always a new enemy. There's always someone else to blame. And that's not to say that there aren't actual terrorists. Of course there are. And that's not to say that uh, the Russian government is good. Of course it isn't. But it is to say that we have to have some sensibility in thinking about what the real threats are and not allow ourselves to be drummed up into uh, a frenzy over war propaganda, because that's when rationality goes out the window and bad decisions that, that end up costing a lot of lives uh, are, are foolishly made. But you know, one of the things that I, I will say that's really interesting about Russia is how much it has changed in the past hundred years. I mean, when you think back to where we're about a hundred years out approximately from the Russian Revolution, the Leninists coming in, the Bolshevik party taking over, killing Tsar Romanov and his family, and institutionalizing uh, the USSR. So now, if you look at Russia, which just a few decades ago was officially an atheist country, uh, the church there is really starting to thrive again. And the culture is being rebuilt. And one of the interesting stories that actually just came up pretty recently here in this uh, most recent news cycle is a well-known evangelical commentator, Hank Hanegraaff, also known as the Bible Answer Man, converted to orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is also the dominant religion now in formerly atheistic Russia, which I just kind of find that fascinating. So, uh, Norman, for those of our, our listeners who hadn't heard about what was going on with Hanegraaff recently, what, why don't you jump in and, and give us the background? Sure, yeah. Hank Hanegraaff is an interesting fellow. As you, as you said, he's been known for years as the Bible Answer Man. I didn't actually know about him until I graduated high school, which, come to think of it, is now about half a lifetime ago. It's getting there <laughs> in, uh, in 2001, and I was given a book um, uh, by Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, thought it was interesting. I listened to a few of his, uh, his radio shows at that point as well and found it interesting. And I haven't paid a ton of attention to him, but I've, yeah, I've held a, you know, a generous respect for a man who's made part of his life's work you know, being acquainted with the Bible and willing to go out and do apologetics and talk about Scripture to people and encourage fellow believers. Um, and so, when a guy like that uh, decides he's going to, you know, switch denominations, I, people take notice. And in fact, this has been kind of a point of controversy uh, to a number of people. And if you can find some um, interesting, we'll just call it that, articles written at places like Pulpit and Pen, and I'm sure that uh, you can find plenty of others, um, you know, many of whom are very critical of this. And it just, it kind of reminded me, you know, how much, how important it is to to really have a, a, a good understanding of Christian tolerance. Um, not tolerance in the, you know, the, the sense that we sometimes hear about it where everything and anything and everything is okay, you know, rel moral relativism in a sense, but properly understood Christian tolerance where we don't make it our, our life's work to just excoriate other people or who claim the label of Christian and – but believe somewhat differently than we do. 
uh, personally and from our uh, uh, the denomination that we might attend, um, but rather seek to understand and to really uh, to to come together with a with a more uh, a seeking objective that we want to seek to understand Jesus better to be to seek to understand the church as a whole, the universal church better, and to understand our fellow believers so that we can love them and encourage them better uh, as a result, rather than trying to tear each other down. Um, it, it's it's really quite remarkable how people have wanted to just rip apart, uh, they, like the people at Pulpit and Pen. I'm, I'm not afraid to say they really just tried to rip apart uh, Hank and the the Greek Orthodox Church, and it's just wrong. That's just wrong. You shouldn't. We, we do not need to behave like that to each other. There, you know, there have been points in time the reformers had a place. There was a reason why we had the Protestant Revolution. That's that's fine, and we can admit that those sorts of things. But it's there's not. This is not the same situation. We don't need to be uh, acting like that against each other. Instead, I think it's it's more incumbent upon us to really uh, to to really seek to understand. Um, I, I'm reminded of one of the first uh, get-togethers, meet meetups that we had as uh, as a Christian libertarian group in Austin a few years ago, um, right after we had the first uh, Christians for Liberty conference. And of course, you know, kind of the uh, the in the Christians for Liberty conferences, you know, the bulk of the people who've come have been from Texas and. Probably, if there's any uh, you know predominant region of Texas, it would be Austin because it was there. Um, and so we had these separate meetups where we invited whoever wanted to come to come, and we were just going to have a discussion group. And in our first meeting, we had nearly 20 people there and about 10 different denominations. And you know what? It was great. We had we had uh, Catholics, we had some people from the Orthodox Church, we had Anglicans. Uh, I mean, me, the Church of Christ kid. Uh, you know, we had we had Lutherans, Baptists, people who were claimed non-denominational. Uh, I mean, you name it. We had, like I said, I think we had about ten different denominations there. And you know what I what I find exciting about those situations is that we can have a real exercise in uh, in true Christian tolerance. There's nothing wrong with having an argument. There's nothing wrong with getting even a little heated. But, you know, I would love at any given point when, when those sorts of things happen, I want to I exit that conversation and we almost want to give each other high fives like, man, that was great. I learned something from you. I am glad that we were able to have a great conversation as Christian brothers. I know that we differ, um, but – I now am encouraged. I am ready to learn more. You have you have made it, made it possible for me to understand Jesus a little better. I want that to be the mantra of ecumenism, as opposed to uh, as as opposed to just let everything fly. It doesn't nothing you know none uh, none of it matters really in the end. It's all just you know or the uh, the opposite of that, which is uh, well, we just need to tear each other apart. We need to drive each other away. We need to make sure we set up our own fiefdoms and circle the wagons and make sure that there is never a question as to that is brought up uh, that might uh, cause me to think a little differently. Um, and you know, we as libertarians ought to kind of get that too. And that's part of the reason I think why it was so easy for us, even in our in our little meetup group, to be that type of group because we're used to being ostracized already. Because <laughs> we don't get what we want as libertarians, right? I mean, we we never do in politics. 
pretty much. <laughs> it doesn't happen. That's that's unheard of. So we're used to kind of being the outcasts already. Why would we want to drive each other away at the point of a at the point of words like that? Instead, we come together. We argue in a good sense. We have good discussions as a result, and we walk away having uh, having really been encouraged by that. And I th- and that was one of that's one of the greatest things I encountered even in our in our small groups like that. And I hope that. You you get those opportunities too, uh, dear listeners, and and to my two co-hosts here is that the opportunity that we have in places like our Facebook group, uh, our our Facebook page, the interactions that we have at at our via our conferences, the events that we hold, and through other libertarian groups that where we get together and we meet fellow Christians that we didn't know existed, that's a great opportunity. You should take those, and uh, and try and put yourself in those situations sometime where you will be open to learn. And uh, and then you won't have these situations where somebody decides that they they feel that they feel convicted to go to a different denomination or something, and you won't feel the need to to tear them apart. Instead, you'll look to understand. That's that's my hopefully my message to uh, to our good Christian brothers and sisters here and our listeners today. I think that's an encouraging way to put things because that my heart is for conversation. Instead of you know winning debates, you know with people, you know libertarians, we're we're a rowdy crowd when it comes to matters of opinion. We have a libertarian, yeah. We have a really good Facebook group going that has a lot of really interesting debate and a lot of I don't know. It's just a lot of hearty debate and sometimes not so hearty debate because you know people and a lot of humor. Yes, a lot of humor. (laughs) Uh, We I think it's well moderated in in several ways well Doug, let's just invite people now to come and join it yeah maybe we should if you're on facebook if you're on facebook you should come and join our our christian libertarian facebook group in fact if you uh if you just search you know in the in the search bar for christian libertarian facebook group it'll come up it's got about nine thousand members in it give or take a few hundred um well at least at this point in time which is you know may 2017 it's probably going to be a thousand more by the time this comes out <laughs> so here's what you can expect you can expect hearty debate you can expect people to encourage each other you can expect to be floored by oh my goodness i can't believe that person actually posted that how could they believe that sort of experiences You'll get you challenged. could you could you can see things and be like oh my goodness i can't believe someone else wrote an article that articulated what i'm feeling and that just really resonated with me and i'm going to share this and so there's i mean there's an eclectic variety of things that we are going to talk about i mean we've we've recently debated <laughs> the uh the AP style for using singular they and whether or not it's an influence of cultural Marxism. That's, that's a pretty random thing if you think about it. And then of course we talk about Romans 13 and we talk about all kinds of things. So join the group and participate. Don't just join the group and browse through. We love participation. The more participation, the better. We have heard feedback by people who are members of multiple groups that this is one of the better ones, uh, if not the best one out there that is of libertarians and Christians. So we kind of we kind of wear that proudly. What what kind of brings to mind, you know, the idea that we're on Facebook and, you know, we like to debate and do things. I have learned over the past, I don't know, probably through the last election cycle, even more importantly, because I have real friends out there in the world who don't share my my theology or my politics. I 
have learned to pick and choose my battles wisely to pick and choose what I hit share on. Will I sort of ostracize or make enemies with people that I have to go to work with simply because I'm posting something that's incredibly unpopular, but actually well thought out and rational rather than the meme that isn't. I've learned over the past, I don't know, maybe decade, but even, like I said, even more so in the, the most recent election that, you know, it's important to pick our battles wisely. So I, I think I want to just bring it up. What, how do you rank issues? I mean, some things are more important to me than others. I will almost freely post things about immigration and uh, accepting refugees. I stay away from other issues because they sometimes can be just too much to get into. And some of it just has to do with the amount of time that I want to invest. I can very easily kind of go to the defense of why I posted an article about immigration and open borders or, or accepting refugees. But other issues, I'm just not as, you know not as well-versed on, even if I have an opinion on it. So, Norman, Nick, what do you think about you know ranking issues that are important? How do we pick our battles? How do we exit gracefully when we're done with the conversation? Many years ago, when I first became a Christian, and I was heavily into ultra-apologetic mode, you know, so it was like I had to debate every every atheist and every skeptic and everyone who disagreed with me on anything. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. But I mean, that was a good 10 plus years ago. Over time, I mean, I just, I realized that that wasn't fruitful to engage in every debate, engage in every discussion. When I think about what battles to pick, particularly as it pertains to liberty and how we market the message of liberty and really what are kind of non-negotiable issues. The, the, the two that I tend to zero in on are central banking and war. And the reason for that is, as I see it, those are the two issues that most drive every other issue of statism, tyranny, and govern, uh, government expansion. So most of our listeners will be familiar with the famous uh, Randolph Bourne quote, war is the health of the state. What he means by that is that when you always are out fighting, you have an enemy, you're always at war. The, the tendency of the government in a state of war is to grow, and that means that liberty is going to diminish. And then the flip side of that, central banking, is the economic mechanism which makes it all possible. So if you look back historically, like to the, the Middle Ages, and particularly the feudal system, before the alliance between the merchants and the kings, if the king wanted to go to war, he had to actually raise the money from the lords to go to war. Central banking, which I mean, is really kind of came out of this alliance in the Middle Ages between the merchants and the crown, allows the, the monarch, or in this case, any any ruler, the empire, the state, what have you, to monetize and finance their war. So the bank provides the credit, the state goes off to war, and then the nature of that is the state expands and expands and expands, and the people become less free. So those are the two issues that I think are, are primary. I mean, there's so many issues of, of ethics and policy and economics that we can talk about that are all relevant, that are all important, but the two that really drive all the others, I think are war and central banking. And so those are the two that I personally harp on the most. 
Nick, it's also interestingly the case that this is the reason why they call things like the war on poverty or the war on drugs uh, wars in the first place because it kind of gives the illusion of there's this enemy, we got to fight it, and we have to ratchet up the power of the state. Which, oh, by the way, that means we need money, and that enables you know uh, more justification uh, to for the cent- for the central bank to be able to issue that credit and expand you know that is part of that ratcheting in, of power. So that's that I think is uh, is a a really good way of putting it, uh, Nick. Because yeah, central banking and, and war are the print you know these really chief issues. War is final. You know, people die. Lives don't come back like that. That is, uh, and that's why you know <laughs> we we harp on that so much. And it's definitely something that I talk about a lot. I want I want to take a you know a slightly different tactic in answering the question, um, which is you know what battles are worth fighting politically. Uh, this is an interesting point that libertarians debate all the time. What political battles are really worth fighting? Now, in some respects, we as Christians kind of recognize that that is a battlefield that we don't always really want to fight on at all. But there are some battles that you can kind of m- foresee that you're actually going to make a realistic difference. So I want to relay a little story that a lot of people may have heard about or may have heard you know, marginally of. But a number of years ago, uh, there was – this is back in 2010. Um, there was the growing concern amongst people in the United States at the ratcheting up of power of the TSA. And that was being – you know, uh, we were beginning to see the, uh, the implementation of enhanced security procedures, as they were calling them, or enhanced uh, – very well, I think they just called it enhanced security uh, with – body scanners and pat downs and that was a that was a big deal we were beginning to see that implemented at all the major airports and and it was becoming a concern to people we didn't really know what to do about it well i kind of recognized at the time that that was a battle that was worth fighting because we had a few things going for us we had popular opinion that was kind of uh, ready to ready and willing for an alternative viewpoint there was a political climate in Texas at the time where we had potential to make some noise, and we had enough uh, uh, we had enough support at the ground level that we could make something happen. And so, recognizing that, uh, I, I actually started up what became known as the uh, well, we. we got a team together and we started writing legislation and we had uh, David Simpson in Texas uh, introduce legislation that became national news that tried to restrict the power of the TSA to, uh, to do certain things and have certain powers. And we made a big splash on it. Like I said, it made national news and we, in, in many respects, I think we helped influence some of the policy there uh, as a result. And that was very exciting to see. Now, what are the lessons of this? I think that the the idea here is really just that the, when you're ready to pick – like picking your battles well politically matters, and it's not just putting somebody up for, for uh, an election or just uh, holding a random protest. But there are ways in which you can target certain policies where you can influence representatives. You can make a difference um, in a very small way that has a force multiplier effect. And 
as a result, you don't need to shoot for the moon. It's not like you're trying to win the presidency. I mean, Ron Paul is a once in a generation sort of event when it comes down to it. Um, but there are things that we can do at local levels in small ways that make a difference and have force multiplier effects on the long run. And you have to kind of look for those carefully. You don't want to just jump into them quickly. You need to kind of really carefully consider the, the climate and the, uh, and, and the situation at hand. Um, and I can't just offer you the perfect answer, but I can kind of relate to you the story as to how we came to that decision, uh, which obviously what we just did. And, encourage you to like look for opportunities like that maybe it's on a school board maybe it's on a you know in a city council maybe it's something you can do at a state level uh, if you look for opportunities you can sometimes make a difference where you might not necessarily expect uh, we got we were very fortunate in what we did with the against the tsa at that point in time um, a lot of people don't know all the things that went on behind the scenes there um, and it would take way too long to tell you everything that happened um, but those are sorts of things that you can look out for and make a difference. So that's how something to uh, think about with regard to picking battles. So that's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed this roundtable discussion. And if you have some feedback for us, we hope that you'll contact us. You can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. And like we said earlier, we hope you'll come and join us at the Christian Libertarian Facebook group as well. We invite your questions. And we hope you enjoyed this. We'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. 